Hi, I'm Mackenzie Bagan, filling in for Ashley Ford, and this is 112 BK. Coming up, a special delegation from the Nelson Mandela Foundation is visiting the 73rd UN General Assembly and making stops in Brooklyn in the 100th year since the Freedom Fighters' birth. The struggle is never done. You will climb a hill and reach the top and realize that you have a whole lot more to climb. And then, death doulas helping to ease the end-of-life experience. Death right now is the second leading fear in the United States. The second leading fear. What's the first one? Public speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, thanks for joining us. In a few moments, we'll meet a death doula, a professional dedicated to helping people die a good death. But first, we have some special guests all the way from Johannesburg, South Africa. They're with the Nelson Mandela Foundation and are visiting the city for the 73rd UN General Assembly on the centenary of Nelson Mandela's birth. Mandela himself paid a visit to Brooklyn in 1990, the same year he was released from prison after 27 years, and four years before he'd become South Africa's first democratically elected president. 100,000 people turned out across Bed-Stuy, East New York, and Fort Greene to greet his motorcade. To learn more about his time in New York and hear about the work of the Nelson Mandela Foundation, we welcome Vern Harris, the Foundation's Director of Archive and Dialogue. Thanks for joining us, Vern. Oh, great pleasure. We also have Patronella Ngaba, a lead researcher for South Africa's Atlantic Fellows Program. Thanks for coming on 112BK. I said your name incorrectly. I'm very sorry about that. Maybe you can say it correctly for me. No, it's okay. I understand. You guys don't have the the Ngavas, the clicks in your language. We don't. I did practice twice, but it will take longer than that. Um, thank you again for coming on the show. And maybe, Vern, yeah. can we start with you? And can you tell us a little bit about the Nelson Mandela Foundation and the work it does? Sure. When uh, Nelson Mandela Madiba, as we call him, stepped down as president of the country, he set up the foundation as his post-presidential office. So we pretty much supported him on all the projects, all the work he wanted to continue doing. When he stepped away from public life, he gave us a new mandate to promote social justice through memory and dialogue work. And Patronella, tell me a little bit about the Atlantic Fellows Program. Okay, so the Atlantic Philanthropies is at its dying stages. So part of what they did is that they gave money away to about seven programs all across the world. So the one that is housed at the Nelson Mandela Foundation is called the Atlantic Fellows for Racial Equity. And it is at the Nelson Mandela Foundation and at Columbia University here in the U.S. Basically, that's the work I do based in South Africa, but working with our office here at Columbia University. That's beautiful to see um, a very concrete example of the way in which Mandela's legacy is being carried on through this work. Yes, definitely. I mean, he was all about um, promoting peace, um, unity across the world. And part of the work that the foundation is trying to do is to do part of the work that we recognize as his unfinished legacy. And that's where the transnational element comes in, which is why the fellowship being housed at Columbia and the NMF becomes such an important venture. And Vern, can you tell us a little bit about Mandela's visit to Brooklyn in 1990? I'm, I'm not sure if you have much information on that, but yeah. why was it important for him to visit Brooklyn so early on? Well, it's on the way from the airport to Manhattan. But we don't um, we don't like we don't like to characterize ourselves as, as merely the throughway yeah, to sure. Manhattan. But <laughs> but I think it, it it was significant in that he stopped off at a local high school and uh, gave a speech that was significant 
in terms of exactly what Patronella is talking about, the transnational dimensions, the solidarities and struggles. Yeah. He had Mamwini Mandela with him, which was also significant because the two of them were both icons of struggle in, in South Africa. Yeah, one could say much about that visit. I, I, it, it became almost emblematic that he had to cancel quite a few of his engagements later in the day because of his exhaustion. And that was pretty much part of his life once he came out of prison. Everybody wanted a piece of him. Mm-hmm. Both of our countries have a legacy of systemic oppression uh, with slavery in the United States and apartheid in South Africa. And I'm curious about what lessons we can learn from one another. I think the big one is that the struggle is never done. And he articulates this a lot in his book, Long Walk to Freedom, the direct quote about how you will climb a hill and reach the top and realize that you have a whole lot more to climb. So when it comes to racial justice for us, although 1994 came and legally apartheid was done with, the structures and the apparatus of racism still exists and still looms large and a reality for many South Africans. So that's why we, on his legacy, we carry that forward to continue the work that he was unfortunately unable to complete. Mm. So it's from that perspective that we do this work. And Vern, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the huge challenges for us is that while we ended apartheid formally is that those deep underlying structures of power and privilege were not dismantled. And that was part of Nelson Mandela's transformation project, is to transform those structures as quickly as possible. We haven't done very well. And consequently, uh, there's still a lot of work to do. And when it comes to racism, if we understand racism to be an apparatus of power that oppresses black people, it's, it's depressing that in a country where we have huge majority of black South Africans and a black-led government is that we still see that black lives don't matter. Mm-hmm. And, and the South African Constitution is one of the most beautiful aspirational documents, um, in my opinion. Yeah. What do you think can explain the divide between what is codified on paper and the problems implementing equality? From my perspective, I think it's doing the work, right? <laughs> Social transformation does not happen because we wish it to happen. It happens because we need to be deliberate about the ways in which we institute what you rightfully say, is on paper. And South Africa is in a space where we're constantly negotiating that, what that actually looks like. We're one of the few countries that when we transitioned into a democratic state, I wouldn't say there wasn't, uh, it wasn't a peaceful transition in the sense, but less bloodbath that could have been possible. And the, there's a responsibility that comes with that, right? There's a, we constantly should do the work and reconcile the country. And it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard job to do. Mm. Yeah, I think that what, what we are now reckoning with is the consequences of our not having a revolution. We had a negotiated uh, settlement and many compromises were made. But the extent to which the leadership of the liberation movements became compromised in that process has constantly undermined our capacity to actually transform society fundamentally. Fortunately, we now have a, a president who we respect and who is leading endeavors to pick up from where Madiba left off in the late 90s. Mm. I'm curious because both of our countries have histories of oppression. 
and racial oppression, right? So uh, I'm curious if there's any any parallels that you can draw or any lessons that we can learn from one another, America with our legacy of slavery and South Africa with the legacy of apartheid. Obviously, your struggle was officially ended much more recently. Mm -hmm. I, I'm just wondering if there's anything that you think that we can, mm. if there's any conversation to be had between the two countries. Mm. Definitely. <laughs> 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 Which is why, you know, we have the Atlantic Fellows for Racial Equity, right? because we're trying to encourage and engage in a transnational deep dialogue process precisely about those. What did it mean for essentially a black majority to become pariahs in their own country, which is where the differences are with the US, right, where it comes from a history of slavery and, and dispossession, but similarly for us. But also how do we begin to have those conversations that learn from each other to change how we understand racism, to stop conversations about racism being solely about the interpersonal relations to one that understands racism as a structural problem. And, and like Vern was referring to earlier on, as an apparatus of power. So those lessons are constantly something that we keep having to have a conversation about in what ways does it manifest itself in the US, in what ways does it manifest itself in, in South Africa, but also be mindful of the fact that we exist in a global community. What does it mean for these two countries to be in conversation with each other? How are we influencing the international conversation around how we understand race throughout the globe? And Vern, any thoughts on that same question? Well. Yeah, you, you know, lots to learn from one another, I think. And I think part of the logic of this program is for us to begin to develop more effective strategies for combating this structural racism. And there are no simple answers. You know, the, the nature of capital is so complex that very often it's difficult to understand how power is being exercised. It's It's often difficult to actually identify and understand how relationships, partnerships work. So one example in our country is how is it possible that some of our traditional leaders have set up partnerships with big mining companies and are now oppressing their own communities through those partnerships. It's, it's important to understand that this is a global phenomenon. It has particular forms of expression in our country, but we can learn from one another. Absolutely. And in the spirit of learning from one another, you have colleagues who are here in New York for UNGA Week. Yep. Can you tell me a little bit about what that's about? Well, the UN, um, as you know, made the 18th of July International Nelson Mandela Day back in 2010 and has always promoted our Mandela Day campaign for this year because it's the centenary of his birth. There was a special I think flourish, so you'll know about the statue that was unveiled at the UN, but also there's a peace summit that's being convened, and uh, there will be reflections on, on Nelson Mandela's lessons of leadership. And I'm also curious about the book Nelson Mandela, Conversations with Myself. You led the editorial team mm -hmm. on that, is that right? Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, what was that experience like, and, and what insights you can offer from the inside as, as director of the archives? <laughs> Well, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a book of extracts from the Mandela archive. And our objective was to, as far as possible, catch Madiba not speaking to an audience, but rather speaking to himself in diaries and notebooks and so on. So I think 
every human being has this experience. Uh, it doesn't matter how open you are as a human being. What is found in your own archive, what you put in your journal, what you put in private communications to your closest friends reveals a part of who you are, which is very different to the, the kind of public representations of you. So we were aiming to share with the world and Nelson Mandela that it's very difficult to access otherwise. And I just want to close out with a question to both of you. You come from different backgrounds, you have different generations, and I'm curious about what you see the future of South Africa looking like. What promise does it hold? You know, one of, for me, one of the lessons uh, Madiba taught us is that hope is not helpful. What we need is the faith to keep working hard, keep doing what is right, whatever the future looks like. Personally, I, I have a lot of positive energy when I think about the future. I think there are huge spaces for opportunity, but it's going to be a long, hard slog. I, I probably won't in my own lifetime see the realization of the country of Madiba's dreams? From my perspective, <laughs> I mean, I, I come from the generation that is born in the time where radical change is happening. I didn't experience the apartheid regime. I was born at the end of it. So my experience of South Africa is one that is always shifting and changing based on the, on the battles won. But I'm... Besides hope, <laughs> I have a lot of faith. <laughs> I have a lot of faith that my generation will spark the flame that will change something. It might not mean that right now, but I, I, I know that we're full of fire, we're full of fight, and we're full of, of dreams, and not just dreams, but realizing those dreams will get the job done. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your chatting with us, Patronella and Vern. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. End-of-life doula may sound like a contradiction, since doulas are most closely associated with beginnings, not endings. In reality, there's a growing movement of nurses, social workers, and volunteers who are trying to help us rethink the way we die. Our next guest, a registered nurse practitioner, has been a death doula for the past 10 years. We'll learn how she helps individuals take control over their final days and what's going on with a one-of-a-kind death doula event she helped organize in New York this week. Suzanne O'Brien, welcome to 112BK. Thank you so much for having me. So as I mentioned, most people immediately think of birth when they think of doulas, but in reality there are abortion doulas, postpartum doulas, mm -hmm. and also death doulas. So what, what is a doula? What is a doula? What does that mean? Okay, that's great. And so the first thing I would say is if they even have heard of the word doula, because a lot of people don't even know about it, but if they have, they do associate it with the birthing of babies. So doula is a Greek word that means non-medical person that gives physical, spiritual, and emotional support to someone else. So it was perfect for me. My background is with a hospice, working with hospice, which is end-of-life care, and also oncology care, which is cancer care. And that's a holistic model of care that you're caring for someone in, in one of the most intense time periods of their life. And it's not just a physical care. There's so much more that's deeper. And so making it that non-medical person as that doula to being the adjunct that can come help now because our healthcare system in the United States is, is fragmented and struggling with the amount of time we can actually be with our patients and our families. So for me, there were so many similarities with bringing a baby in 
as helping somebody leave. And so I wanted to put that word doula because it really kind of encompassed everything that we do as practitioners at that end of life bedside spiritually, emotionally, and physically for someone else. And the key was non-medical. Now, I am a nurse, but what I teach is something that anyone can learn who is called to want to learn this and help out. And why do you think that there is a need for this role? What is wrong with the way that we do end-of-life care right now? Well, you know, I really feel that nobody is intentionally doing anything wrong. It's just the way. I think we've gotten, unfortunately, in the perfect storm. So in the last hundred years, our lifespan has dramatically increased from 46 to 79. And in that short period of time, we've also made wonderful medical advances, and that's fantastic. But what I think we forgot is that death is a natural part of the life's journey. And so when we're teaching our medical practitioners, we're teaching them how to keep people alive, keep going. And that's really important in one sense, but I think we forgot that death is a part of the journey and that it's so important to have quality over the quantity, and that's for someone to decide. So our system, with the reimbursement way that the medical system in the United States is set up, is that unfortunately it's really challenging for people now to stay afloat. So we have to see so many patients, and we're given a short window to actually be one-on-one -on -one with that patient, and a lot of that time is often with the documentation. And so I found that working with end-of-life patients and running in and out of a visit was not doing enough. And also, here's the thing, that nine out of 10 people want to be kept at home if they were terminally ill, and these are by mm -hmm. polls and surveys all over. And so people are in that home environment as the hospice nurse, and I love hospice. It's a holistic model of care. The concept was that the hospice nurse comes in, manages the care, but I teach the loved ones how to actually do that care. And I found that the system was breaking down because I was only there sometimes once a week for an hour. That's really not enough. And the the second factor was that death right now is the second leading fear in the United States. The second leading fear. What's the first one? Public speaking. <laughs> so why don't we just okay. combine it all, right? No, it's that is really funny. But it, you know, that's that fear is so palpable that if you're in that fear space, I can't teach you anything because you're you're blocked. So mm -hmm. that short amount of time that I'm running in and out, and we know that patient was going to pass, and so these these end of lives are so much more complicated right now because we're not talking about it, we're not preparing for it, and we don't have practitioners that are really able to be there for the time guiding. Just like that doula, that birth doula is with a woman when she's pregnant, when she's in labor, when that baby's born, right. and even afterwards. It's an attention to process, not just the medical reality that you're dealing with at that moment. Very much so. And, and so what inspired you to do this work? Well, I mean, I have always been drawn to our elder population. I just, I just have as a nurse. And so when I got into the official nursing, I was seeing elderly that were just really kind of on their own and out and lonely. And then as I would sit and talk with them, you know, listening to them. And then when I would work with people at the end of life and it wasn't going well, I said, we need to do, what can we do to make this better and really open up the conversation? Because again, I'm, I'm going to go back to that fear. We had people that were, you know, 90 something years old, lived full lives. And still, if they got a terminal diagnosis, it was like, do something, fix it. And I thought, what is that? What is that denial and dysfunction about? And it's just that we haven't 
explored, talked about, or even seen the aging and the death process. So nobody knows what that looks like. Right. And so this fear around it um, is really causing, I think, a lot of the damage that we're seeing right now. And it doesn't need to be that way. And you spent time in Zimbabwe, you mentioned. Yes. What did that? How did that inform the way that you started thinking about your work? It was huge. So I was a hospice nurse at the time, and I'm always um, looking to contribute in some way to giving back, because we're so privileged here. And I had a friend who had been involved with an organization that worked in Africa and uh, two different countries, and he was telling me that, um, you know, there were seven-year-old children taking care of dying parents. And I said, I'm in. I want to help you with that. So I was working with this organization, and then finally they said, you need, you need to come. You need to go over there. And I wasn't even really thinking about it. I decided to go over on a self-paid trip, and I, I got to work with hospice nurses and social workers and go out with them to take care of. And they don't have the equipment and the finances and the medications like we have here. But yet the average age of a woman is 42. There were children taking care of dying parents, so they see death a lot more. But they showed me something, and they showed me about the power of the presence. And what they were doing was taking a neighbor that was going to care for the neighbor that was dying in the hut and take care of their family, like that doula, for the duration. And that was the key. The key was not the running in and out of the visit. The key was to be there and hold space for somebody. And what do you need? I'm here for you. And I'm going to guide you through this and walk your family through this. And you're safe in that sense. And it was so powerful that I came back here and, and shared that information and said, this is what we need to do. So instead of the hospice nurse coming in when somebody is in that crisis space, I wanted to teach it beforehand. Mm -hmm. Bring back this skill that 100 years ago was handed down from grandparent to the children. And so bringing that back, and it, and it worked. It was beautiful and giving them the credit because we we think we're so smart and we are a wonderful smart country with so many resources but we forgot that sometimes the simplest things about being a human being and the skill that is a human skill can be like the most effective and so part of what you do is training others to do this work as well. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the event that you organized in New York. Thank you. So the NPEC event, that's the National Professional End of Life Doula Certification. So if you Google this and if you know End of Life Doula, sometimes called Death Doula, same thing, has really taken off as far as we we understand that as medical practitioners working in that space, it's not enough. We don't have enough time. So we need to bring in highly trained people that are non-medical professionals that can do it. And so what we did, I collaborated with Deanna Cochran, another RN who's amazing, and Patty Burgess. And both of these women are on the End of Life Doula Council for NHPCO. So a lot of big things are going on nationally. So we put together over the last year the National Professional End of Life Doula Certification. That's going to be in New York this Thursday, all weekend through Monday. And it is for bringing the doulas coming in for training and bringing them into a training that can incorporate the end-of-life doula into all healthcare systems. And I think you said this at the top of our conversation is that doulas can be used in all different areas of care, and they should be, because they're wonderful holistic practitioners, and it's a great adjunct to all these divisions that we really don't have a great setup for in mainstream medical right now. And if people are interested in learning more, where can they go? So they can go to Pro Doula International. And again, you can um, also Google NPEC, which is the National Professional End of Life Doula Certification. It's going to be at the Pennsylvania Hotel. And we do have something that I'd like to share. On Thursday evening, we have a movie screening, a documentary for 
any healthcare practitioner would like to come, we'd like you to be our guest. And then there's going to be a panel afterwards. And this is going to be an amazing event with some guest speakers. So we'd like you to contact us at ProDoula International. And if you'd like to come to that Thursday event and you're a healthcare practitioner, be our guest. And then the public is also welcome. It's a $35 ticket, but please come if you're interested. And you also have a podcast, yes? I have a podcast, yes. I have a podcast called Ask a Death Doula, and that is on iTunes. And that is a weekly show where you can call up, you can ask any question. I want to be a resource for anyone who has questions about end of life, care about end of life, advanced directives, what do I do to care for my mom? I want them to have a place where they can come on a weekly basis, get information because we really need it and that can change the whole pathway of how we care for our elders and very, very important. Absolutely. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And now some news in collaboration with Brookliner. Last Thursday, the DOT released its preliminary plans to make necessary repairs to one and a half miles of highway along the BQE in Brooklyn Heights. The two draft proposals include years of construction and delays for commuters and residents, as well as the temporary closure of the Brooklyn Promenade. The first option, also known as the quick BQE fix, would take six years to complete. The second proposal involves a lane-by-lane -lane closure and could take up to eight years to complete. The project is slated to begin in 2020 or 2021. According to Gothamist, the BQE sees around 153,000 vehicles daily. And speaking of traffic, it's UN Week in the city. As we already discussed, the General Assembly is in town, and Brooklyner makes this suggestion. Don't even think of driving into Manhattan. Good advice, considering all the motorcades, street closures, police presence, etc. Check out Brooklyner for a link to an NYPD page describing day-to-day -day street closures. The listening session for legalization of recreational marijuana in New York State is coming to Brooklyn Tuesday night. And judging from previous sessions in the city, the listeners are going to get an earful, mostly from advocates who've been blunt in their desire to have easier access to weed. If you're a concerned party, put down the Cheetos and head over to LIU's Brooklyn campus at 6 p.m. Don't forget to register first so your voice can be heard. But if that's not your cup of tea and you're looking for other potentially more frustrating meetings to attend, there's an MTA town hall at Medgar Evers College on 1638 Bedford Avenue, also on Tuesday night. This one starts at 630. MTA President Andy Byford will be there and it will give local residents an opportunity to learn more about the $8 million spending plan for the struggling system. If you can't be there but want to vent anyway, tweet at us using the hashtag 112BK. For more on these and other stories, go to BKLYNER.com. That's the show for today. Tomorrow, I'll be back to talk about NYCHA and what's next for that beleaguered authority. Hope you can join us. One One Two BK is hosted by Ashley Ford, except when she's off getting married. Congratulations, Ashley. So for the next couple of weeks, it will be hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is written and produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Barhi, Isabella Cantara, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, and Emily Bogosian. 
It is recorded by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. And it is edited by Mira Al-Rahim and executive produced by Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>